If you please turn with me in your Bibles to First Thessalonians chapter two as we continue our series through the book of First Thessalonians. So our text this evening is 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Hear God's word. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses and God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. For various reasons, certain professions tend to carry with them a bad reputation, and pastors tend to be labeled as hypocrites. How many movies have been made by Hollywood where the pastor ends up being a criminal of some sort? Pastors are often portrayed as a character who outwardly is pious and gentle and loving, but privately behind the scenes is as evil as evil can be. In one movie, the pastor is the last person people suspect, but he is the mass murderer terrorizing the town. In another movie, a pastor gains the trust of his community and then swindles them out of their money. Anymore, if I see a pastor in a movie, I immediately suspect he's probably going to be the villain. And part of the reason for such stereotypes is that people hate Christ and thus hate his messengers. They want to believe that pastors are hypocrites because then they have an excuse not to believe the message of the gospel. They figure if they can point out any failure in a pastor, that pastor is automatically a hypocrite. But of course, it's not hypocrisy to be a sinner. It's hypocrisy to be a sinner who claims to be perfect. And while many pastors would never try to wear a mask of perfection, there are plenty of pastors who are hypocrites, pastors who use their positions for personal benefits, such as power and prestige and money, even though the pastorate is supposed to be about serving Christ and others. There are pastors who, because of their desire for personal benefits, tell people what they want to hear. Uh, This amounts to using preaching as a tool to manipulate people. Too many pastors want people to like them when God has called pastors to proclaim his word, no matter how unwelcome a particular message may be. But to use the gospel ministry for the direct purpose of 
personal advantage is hypocrisy. The Apostle Paul was accused of such hypocrisy many times during his years of ministry. And uh, this first letter to the Thessalonians reveals that there were people who opposed his ministry, who voiced negative opinions about him in the church. And while we have no evidence that the Christians in Thessalonica were listening to this slander, Paul was evidently concerned that some might become affected by it, which is why he spends a good portion of chapter 2 talking about his work of ministry. And you understand, I hope, that his, his concern is not selfishly motivated. His concern is that his message might be discredited by these enemies of the gospel. And even though we aren't told exactly what these enemies were saying when we study Paul's defense here in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, we can begin to put two and two together, and we get a pretty good idea of what his enemies were saying. Hendrickson, in his commentary, says that the slander was something like this, quote, Paul and his associates are deluded individuals who, for selfish reasons and with trickery, are trying to exploit the people. End quote. And uh, Hendrickson also puts forth what he believes is the ultimate goal of these slanderers. These enemies were reasoning within themselves something like this quote, If we succeed in awaking distrust with respect to the messengers, the message will die a natural death. End quote. And so that would mean that the attack on Paul was really an attack on the gospel. And Paul was naturally concerned for these young and immature Christians in Thessalonica, and it's out of love for the gospel and for the good of the church that Paul then makes a self-defense. And we must not imagine that Paul here is undergoing a self-esteem crisis because of criticisms that were being made against him. He's defending his character, and he's defending his his, uh, methods of ministry because as a messenger of the gospel, he knows that his reputation and the reputation of the gospel are closely tied together. And uh, furthermore, Paul was already aware of the fact that there are plenty of so-called preachers of the gospel who do use their positions for personal advantage. Preachers and teachers who enter the church who are the kind of false teacher that here the apostle has probably been accused of being. And uh, Paul wants to warn the church against such leaders. God's people then and now need to make sure that they choose church leaders who are motivated by a love for Christ and a love for his people, a love for the gospel. And so while the immediate purpose of these verses before us this evening um, is a defense of Paul's ministry, What's also happening indirectly is that we are being educated about what godly ministry is like. And uh, while this passage cer- certainly applies first and foremost to, to me, to other elders, uh, this passage applies also to you, uh, because this passage, for one thing, reminds you of the kind of leaders that you should choose in uh, your, your elections of officers. And second, this passage comes to all in the church as a challenge It confronts really all of you in your work of ministry because all of you as Christ's disciples are called to serve or to minister. The the word ministry or minister comes from the the simple basic Greek word for servant. And uh, while preachers and elders are called officially to serve or to minister in the church, 
in positions of leadership. You don't have to have a title to minister. Everyone is called to be involved in the work of service. In fact, Ephesians 4, verses 11 and 12 says that Christ gives pastors and teachers to the church for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And so that would uh, imply that you need to be open for evaluation this evening as God's word confronts every one of you about your work of ministry. What is godly ministry? And as uh, chapter 2 opens, Paul is still reflecting on the wonderful experience he had ministering to those who make up the Thessalonian church. What Paul has just talked about in chapter 1 is how the gospel was received. It was welcomed, and uh, the gospel transformed the lives of the people there in the church of Thessalonica. The people were undoubtedly there, the elect of God, because when they heard the gospel, they responded by putting their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And like all true faith, theirs was a faith that revealed itself in good works, including the work of spreading the gospel. And so this, uh, this was not um, uh, that false kind of faith where a person initially uh, seems so enthusiastic for Christ but then leaves it all behind at the first sign of trouble. No, these Christians were leaving behind their idols. They were leaving behind their old way of life, and they were serving the Lord. And here's the key. They were serving the Lord despite opposition. This shows wholehearted devotion to the Lord that is far deeper than some fleeting emotional decision. As Paul reflects on how the lives of the Thessalonians have been transformed for the good, he wants the people to know that This is exactly what he and his missionary companions were praying would happen. They had been preaching the gospel with the loving desire that such spiritual benefits would come about in the lives of their listeners. And so as Paul thinks about his ministry there in Thessalonica, it's obvious in his own mind why he had been there. But because there were these enemies slandering him and his message, he turns in chapter 2 to this explicit explanation of his methods and motives in ministry begins there in verse 1 of chapter 2. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. And I would argue that this is the key verse for this entire section. This verse by itself answers the main argument of Paul's enemies that Paul was in ministry for himself. And that might not be obvious at first, Um, There are several ways that we can understand this phrase, our coming to you, um, this clause, our our coming to you is not in vain. Um, In general, we know that when something is not in vain, the meaning is that it's not empty, that it's not useless. And so we could be here understanding Paul to be saying that his work among them, it was not empty, it was not futile, it was not a failure. His ministry, in fact, bore fruit. And the argument then is that the fruit of Paul's ministry proves that he is definitely one of God's servants, that definitely he is one that was bringing the word of God. His enemies cannot deny that his work has brought about an abundance of spiritual fruit in people's lives. That interpretation is possible. It's it's biblical. But I, along with others, prefer to understand verse 1 differently because this word translated in vain means literally empty-handed, empty-handed. There are a number of places in Scripture 
where the Greek word used here is translated that way. It's translated as empty-handed. Example would be in Mark 12, where we find the parable of the wicked vine dressers. In that parable, when a servant is sent to receive some of the fruit of the vineyard, he is sent away empty-handed. It's the same word that Paul uses here. And thus what Paul is saying is that he and his companions did not come empty-handed. They did not come with empty hands. This implies that they came with something to give to the people. They gave themselves as servants, and in that service gave the Thessalonians the gospel of God. The result was that the people did not themselves go away empty-handed. And so if we could sum up what Paul is saying in verse 1, it would be this, you brothers know that we came to give, not to take. You can immediately understand how this would be Paul's main defense against those attacking his reputation because the, the, the essence of the attack against Paul was that all you do, Paul, is take, take, take. All you do is exploit people for your own ends. All you are concerned about is what you can get for yourself. And over against this, Paul says, you know, brothers, that our coming to you was all about giving, not taking. And if we adopt this understanding then of verse 1, we can immediately see how the verses that follow are related because the rest of this section really is then just an explanation of how this selfless giving ministry looked. But before we consider the details of Paul's selfless ministry, I would draw your attention to this basic principle of verse 1 that ministry is not about taking but about giving. Uh, If we always applied this basic principle to our lives, our ministry would always be what God intended it to be. For our goal in doing the work of ministry must never be about what we can get for ourselves, but about what we can give to others in God's name and for his glory. Because as soon as ministry becomes about self, can it even really be called ministry? Yet this is a constant temptation that we all face There's the lure of works righteousness and the self-centered desire to do ministry because you think that by doing this work of service, you will earn a place in heaven. The devil would love for you and me to turn ministry into something where we no longer trust Jesus, but we trust self. And then there is the lure of doing things in the church because of how you will look before others so that you may even avoid doing the work that no one notices in order to do those things where you stand out and receive recognition and praise. You and I must not think about those those selfish uh, selfish desires. We, We ought to be thinking about what kind of a member are we in the church, and are we a selfless giver? Are our hands always empty, or are we ready to grab what we can get from others? Are your hands loaded with gifts? that you're ready to give to others. Paul was one who gave. And we see in verses 2 through 12 here of chapter 2, a description of what giving ministry is like. And First, we see um, in these verses that a good minister is willing to make personal sacrifices. Um, In verse 2, Paul makes reference to how he had been mistreated as a minister both in Philippi and Thessalonica. You know, if Paul had been in the ministry because it was offering him a life of leisure, um, if that's, I mean, if that's what he was seeking, 
um, in his work of ministry, he would have quit long ago. Um, Paul had just been in Philippi before coming to Thessalonica, and Acts 16 records how there in Philippi he was unjustly arrested, he was beaten, he was imprisoned, all because of his work of ministry. And nevertheless, after Paul left Philippi, what did he do? He immediately continued his work of ministry in a new place in Thessalonica. And Acts 17 tells us that there also um, he encountered opposition. In uh, verse 2, he reminds the Thessalonians, we, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Even though Paul and his companions left opposition in Philippi, only to encounter it again in Thessalonica, God gave them the boldness and the courage to persevere and to keep proclaiming the gospel, even though it kept putting their lives in danger. Later in verses 8 and 9, Paul makes reference to other personal sacrifices. He says, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. So Paul is saying that he and Silas and Timothy, they gave the Thessalonians the gospel, but not only that, themselves, they gave them their very lives. Paul is referring to the the great sacrifices involved in working for a living and doing the work of ministry at the very same time. With some churches, Paul made use of his right to have the church support him, but in Thessalonica, he did not want to be a burden to any of them and apparently figured it was best in that situation there not to have even the appearance that he was preaching the gospel for money. And so he labored to make a living, probably making tents, as we know that that was his trade. And we may wonder when Paul would have had time to preach the gospel, and that's exactly his point. To preach the gospel in Thessalonica required laboring night and day. It meant unending work, little rest, little relaxation. And Paul's example confronts us and asks us how willing we are to make personal sacrifices for the good of the church. Everyone is so busy these days, but is being busy a legitimate excuse for letting church work suffer? When there are so many things to get done at home and at church, we can't get everything done. We have to choose our priorities. And of course, we need to remember that we can always be better managers of our time. And yet still, we have to make choices about what we are going to do with the limited time that we have. We have to make choices about how willing we are, how, to what degree we're willing to give of ourselves. How, how much are you willing to sacrifice to see the church prosper and grow? It's a good question to ponder, but we know this. A good servant, a faithful servant of Christ, is willing to make personal sacrifices. And for Paul to make such personal sacrifices, he was obviously not in ministry for the money, which brings us to another characteristic of good ministry. A good minister has godly motives. And Paul refers to his own motives there in verses 3 through 6. He says, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. That word error is sometimes translated as deceit because it refers to an error in morals or beliefs that leads one into committing acts of 
error, deceit, or fraud. And that word impurity refers to impure motives and lusts for luxurious prodigal living. And deceit refers to tricking, to cheating, or misleading someone in order to take advantage of him. In verse 5, Paul is talking about the same evil motives when he says, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. In verse 4, he says, We speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Verse 6 similarly says, Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. And so what Paul is saying in these verses is that he was motivated in his work, not by money, not by prestige. He was not some kind of con artist who was trying to deceive the people in order to fleece them. There are those who work in the church who are covetous. They want to be rich. They want to be big shots. And so they say and they will do whatever will get them what they want. Paul was not one of these. And you and I must not be either. You and I must do our work in the church because we want to please God and to help others. We must not have any ulterior motives where we view the work of ministry and God's people as a tool to our ends. This brings us then to the third characteristic of a good minister, which is that he faithfully proclaims God's word while giving no thought to people's praises or criticisms. First, it may seem so very obvious, but let it be stated explicitly that a good minister of the gospel proclaims God's word. He doesn't proclaim his own ideas. He doesn't, for sure, pro- uh, proclaim false doctrine. Notice what verse 4 says about Paul's perspective on his work. He says, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. So Paul understands he had been entrusted by God himself with the gospel, which means that he was accountable to God to proclaim the message of God's word in a truthful way, as well as with correct motives. The same perspective is seen in verse 2, where Paul says, We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So as an ambassador of God entrusted to deliver God's message, Paul was oblivious to people's praises or criticisms. Paul had the boldness to proclaim the gospel in much conflict because, as he explains in verse 3, for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. If Paul's message had been his own ideas and if his motives had been to preach what people want to hear, he would have had neither the courage nor desire to keep proclaiming it against opposition. But because he had a mandate from God to preach, because his message was God's truth, which affects people's lives for all eternity, he was compelled to persevere in ministry. Related to his boldness was the fact that he didn't speak to please man. He didn't use flattering words. He didn't seek glory from men. He thus didn't preach what people wanted to hear. He didn't preach what would make him popular. He preached what God told him to preach. He preached the word of God because That's what touches people's lives, and he told it like it is. According to verse 11, sometimes this ministry involved exhorting. Sometimes he encouraged. Sometimes he charged the congregation. He says he treated them like a father does his own children, and children need all of these things, right? They need exhortation. They need encouragement. 
They need sometimes to be charged to walk in the right way. Sometimes children do not listen to instruction and they do foolish and dangerous things, but a good father pursues those who are doing wrong and he doesn't back down from leading them in the right way. And so Paul was like a good father who gave God's people exactly what they needed. And sometimes what we need is not what we want. All of us, but especially the preachers of the gospel, are faced with opportunities to relate God's word directly to people's lives. And if a person you are counseling, if a person you are talking to about the scriptures is not living like a Christian, the easy and comfortable thing to do is to just water down God's requirements. When you fear the displeasure of other people, you will not be as direct and as confrontational as God's word is because God's word doesn't beat around the bush. Christ in his ministry did not beat around the bush. He called sin, sin. And he didn't care if people were offended. He didn't care if they were upset by the truth. And being a good minister in God's church requires having a hard skin against criticism as well as a deaf ear to people's praise. The reason why a minister must not be overly concerned with man's praise or criticism is because you and I must be those who love people and who seek their spiritual welfare above all else. Paul gives a beautiful description of his ministry there in verse 7. He's already talked about being like a father, but then he says, Also, we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children which comes right after verse 6, which which says, Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. So as apostles, think of that, as apostles, as those directly called by Christ himself to the ministry in which they were involved, Paul and his companions, they could have come into the church as hotshots, demanding this and that, throwing around their weight, using their authority in a boisterous way. There could have been a temptation to do that. But instead, they chose to be gentle. I take this to mean that they were mild and kind in their dealings, that even when it came to confrontation, they were not overly harsh, they were not overbearing, they were not nasty. It's because they cherished the people like a nursing mother does her own children. I see in that figure not only a picture of the caring attitude that is to characterize ministry, as we serve others, but that's also a picture of selfless love. A nursing mother cherishes her children in a way that is selfless. She doesn't do it to receive praise. She takes care of the child out of love. And Paul also speaks in verse 8 of how he affectionately longed for the Thessalonians. He preached the gospel and he labored and he toiled for these people because he was affectionately longing for their spiritual welfare. Paul tells us the godly goal he had in mind for them there in in verse 12, to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. There's a summary really of his work there in verse 10 when he says, you are witnesses and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. Our study of Job, we've looked at that word blameless. It means essentially he wasn't a hypocrite. That how he acted outwardly was his true self. Paul's ministry was not about himself. It was not about selfish gain. 
his ministry was what God wanted, wanted it to be because it was a ministry of the word done out of a spirit of genuine concern for people's spiritual welfare. And as the day of the Lord's return approaches, it becomes increasingly important that the church have good ministers, good ministers of the word. As more and more false doctrine arises, ministers of the word are needed who will boldly stand for the truth, even if it makes them unpopular. As the world becomes more and more evil, and as Christians therefore face more and stronger temptations, ministers are needed who have such a love for people that they will tell a person living in sin, you are not living like a Christian. And they will exhort them, and they will encourage them, and they will charge them. And they will say what is needed, even though the person may be offended. And as it becomes more and more difficult to live as a Christian, it's also important that we comfort and encourage one another. And some, you and I must have a genuine concern for people's spiritual welfare and a concern that puts others' needs above your own. And let us not forget that the perfect example of a good minister is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said, I did not come to be served, but to serve. I give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus' ministry was completely about giving, not taking. And when you begin to feel good about how much you have served, or maybe you feel like too much is being demanded of you, remember how Jesus gave the ultimate sacrifice of his own life in order that we could know spiritual blessing can't even begin to give like Jesus gave. And of course, he was more than an example of a selfless minister. His ministry earned our salvation. His ministry enables us to serve as members of God's kingdom. His suffering and dying on the cross was all about his paying the penalty of our sins to bring us into fellowship with God, to enable us to even be in a position where we can begin to serve as people who belong to God. And without him willing to become a servant for us, we would still be dead in our sins. We'd be serving the devil. We would be serving ourselves. But thanks be to God for sending his son to die for us and to earn for us the gift of the Holy Spirit who has regenerated our hearts. We have been born again and he has given us the gifts of faith. He's given us the gift of repentance through which our sins are forgiven. He works in our hearts to sanctify us, which means to make us more holy, to make us more like Christ. And he will one day bring us to glory. And for our ministry to be what it ought to be, you and I need to be like Jesus. We need to be conformed more and more into his image. And may God give you and me a love for his word and kingdom like Jesus has. Where you put others and their spiritual benefits before, your, before yourself, before your own interests. Amen. Let us pray. Our great God and Father, we do thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the perfect minister, who gave selflessly out of a love for you, out of a love for his people. Lord, may we in our ministry, may especially preachers of the gospel and those who are elders in the church, but all of us as ministers, may we, Lord, be selflessly serving our Savior. May we be involved in ministry and serving others and serving the cause of the gospel um, selflessly, involving personal sacrifice. May it be for the right motives, which are 
to be a blessing to others, to glorify you, to see Christ honored. Lord, we pray that, uh, Lord, you would be especially uh, guarding your church in these days of great evil and so many temptations around us. Lord, we pray for ministers who are willing to selflessly tell us what we need to hear, who will self selflessly uh, present even those things that are often offensive, the things that we need to hear in order to walk faithfully before you. Lord, uh, we thank you for this word. We pray that we would take it to heart, that we would apply it to our lives. And Lord, we, we thank you that uh, you do raise up ministers who are truly motivated, like Christ, to serve your people. That tells us of your love for us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.